I'm wishing they would have put the flying saucer around this thing so I could preach from the middle of it. <laughs> I think that might have ruined the effect, maybe, I don't know. Take your Bibles and go with me to the book of Acts, chapter 10. If you're not aware of it, let me make you aware of it. Teresa and I are closing on a house on Thursday, and we'll be moving uh, back to Lumberton. We uh, moved into Beaumont about a year ago. That's its own story. I'm happy to tell you. If you want to know, you can ask me. But um, So we're coming back. Hate to disappoint you, but uh, so it is. So that means around our house, we've been packing boxes. That's always fun. And so part of what we're doing is sorting through stuff because, um, I don't know, as we have gotten older, our perception of what is valuable has changed significantly. Uh, Plus, our children left all their junk when they left our house. And so this is our last filter through the junk so to speak, and um, so it's caused me, especially as I was preparing for this message, uh, it's caused me to kind of think about the idea of that which is usable or useful, and that prompts this question for me, What, what, or maybe better said, whom? Does God view as useful in his kingdom work? I know that our, it's not a bad answer, I know that our uh, sensibilities, our theology, and even our own biblical uh, literacy would tell us that the right answer to that is everybody is useful to God's kingdom's work and everybody is usable in God's kingdom work, but also we are aware enough that when we start looking at the landscape of church history, what we tend to do is gravitate to those people who we would consider to be towering figures on that landscape. Think, for instance, of those people in our day that are most noteworthy as Christian leaders. Um, The previous service, our eighth, 30 service, had to think for a second, 8.30 service, uh, it's a little different uh, demographic in there. There are a lot more people with no hair or with white hair in that service than we have in here usually. Um, and in that service, those people that I'm talking about that we would say, oh, well, those, those are God's useful tools or usable people are people like Billy Graham and, you know, that group. We might say in here, you might know Franklin Graham or Andy Stanley or, um, you know, Craig Groeschel or some of those kind of people. Maybe some of you know them, some of you don't. But um, for the most part, we seem to buy into, at least I think we do, we seem to buy into this practical functioning of there are those people in God's kingdom's work that are the big mouth, big shot, big high profile people that God uses And then there's us. When I first started getting to the point where I was aware of this whole idea that God might want to use us in his kingdom's work, um, 
I realized that I didn't see him doing a whole lot in my own life. And so this became my prayer. God, use me in your work. It's a simple prayer. It's not a bad prayer. But one of my mentors apparently knew that that's what was going on with me because I remember sitting in a congregation kind of like you are today, and I remember hearing him highlight this, and in his his presentation he said, if you're out there and you're praying, God, use me, he said this, if you'll just get usable, God will use you up. So I shot him. Uh, (laughs) Or at least I wanted to. Because what he did with that is he took it off of God, like my prayer was, God, just use me in your kingdom's work. Well, you know what? You don't have to ask whether that's God's will or not. We know that's God's will for us. So his comment brought it home to me that maybe the problem was more me than it was God. So what I want to do today is kind of piggyback on the theme for D now. We'll get back to James next week. But I want to kind of piggyback on the theme of D now, and I want to talk uh, about, uh, uh, to use this passage in Acts chapter 6, and I want to highlight some things for us very quickly, and I hope to put some tools in your hand as you go out of this place today so that you might be usable in God's kingdom work. Um, And so, in Acts chapter 10, we have this familiar story. Uh, it's the story where Simon Peter uh, goes up on a rooftop and he gets, you know, he's the first original Baptist preacher. He gets up there and he's middle of the day and so he takes a nap. And while he's in this nap, he's hungry. And so the, God sends this vision. Remember the sheet gets lowered down. It's got all these animals and God says to him in this vision, this dream, uh, take and eat. And Simon Peter's response to that is, I am a good Jew. Now, he didn't say it that way, but that's what he meant. I have never, I wouldn't eat anything that's unclean. And the implication of that is in this, well, not just a straight up truth of the, of the dream. There's unclean animals as far as the Jewish law was concerned. Um, Simon Peter sees that. God says, take and eat. And so he has this debate with God about what he should and should not eat. Interesting, interesting theological and biblical uh, issue in this passage for us. But as he does that, the voice of God in that dream says, I'm going to put it in my terms rather than quote it. God essentially says, listen, if I'm involved in that, it's not unclean. Now that's groundbreaking information for a good Jew. It's such such a groundbreaking information uh, thing for him that God has to do it three different times with him for Simon Peter to get it. But while that's going on, there's also this uh, activity of God with a non-Jew. As a matter of fact, this non-Jew is Cornelius. And he is one who is a God-fearer. He's Roman. Uh, He's a centurion. Therefore, he's one of the officers, kind of we would call him maybe a non-commissioned officer kind of thing in the Roman army. So by definition, he's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. And he got, even though he deals with God and he's a God-fearer and he's compassionate to people around him, which is for a Roman centurion. He's he's not the typical Roman that we get in Scripture. And God's dealing with him about getting in touch with this guy named Simon Peter. So that's what's going on in Romans 10. But before we get to some of the specifics of that, and specifically 
before we get to what I want to say are, are characteristics that we find here of people that are usable for God's kingdom work. And I also want us to focus on some of the barriers that keep us from getting there. I want to start at the end here. Because I think that maybe it would be good for us to have some kind of a picture of what usable gets to. So we start at the end of chapter 10. Usable produces certain things here. Let me just stop for a second and, and let's, let's kind of t- uh, tackle the perceptions that we have of what makes a successful church. I've been in Lumberton long enough now to identify a few trends around here. Um, I'm marching quickly towards the end of my fifth year. And uh, one of the things that I noticed when I first got here, now I have some, some foundation for understanding better. Well, you, you may, if those of you who are here may remember, one of the things I used to say fairly regularly right after I got here was, there sure are a lot of churches around here. Have you noticed that? You know, in a if you just if we're the center and you go uh, out to a one mile radius of this, how many churches do we have just in that section of Lumberton? You know what I figured out why we have so many churches? Because people get mad and they go start their own church. Now you know that's true everywhere. That's not just a Lumberton thing. Um, so I don't really think that's all there is to it. Although there is certainly truth to it. Why do we have so many churches? And one of the things that I think I've discovered is we have a lot of churches here because there's a lot of people here. Now, if you grew up in Lumberton, like some of the folks in our early service had had a chance to talk through some of this stuff, uh, this is not the same town it was even five years ago when I got here. There are people coming in from all over the place. Some of you out there are people who have finally seen the light and you moved to where God wanted you to be. <laughs> Let me tell you, it took me all of my life to get to Lumberton. I'm not leaving again. I don't want to scare you. That's just how There's a lot of people here. I had the chance when I first moved here to sit down with Herbert Siemens, who was uh, one of the, I don't know if he was a charter member here, but he was pretty close to it. He's, he's one of the charter guys for Lumberton, I think. And he used to tell me about how they just, you know, had to, you know, dig the first ditches. And, you know, he, I think he worked for the telephone company, and he was responsible for helping put what was a railroad switch on the map as a town here. This town is no longer a little village. A lot of people here. What, what, what would somebody want to look for in a church to find one that was doing its job? Maybe another way to say that with what I'm talking about today is what usable people pull off when it comes to being a church. Wrong way to say that because people don't do it at all. It's got to be God's work as we find in this passage. So I'll begin reading in chapter 10, verse 44. Follow along with me. And while Peter was still saying these things, and I'll just push you back up to verses 34 through 43 primarily. Simon Peter gets to Cornelius' house as God told him to do. There's more to that. We'll get to it. But when he gets there, he starts talking to them about Jesus Christ and the transforming power of the life that only Jesus can give. And so while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. 
That's one of those moments in Scripture. And I know I'm not supposed to read verse 46 because it's a Baptist church, but let's go ahead and get it in since it's in Scripture. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. What we find here, verse 44, the Holy Spirit fell on them. Verse 46, they were speaking tongues and extolling God. In other words, uh, it was the evidence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Was there, verse 48, Simon Peter recognizes that. He gives the stamp of approval, if you will, of that early church. He says, what, these people need to be baptized. In other words, this is the real deal that we're seeing here. And then the watershed verse. And this is the one that, that I think needs to inform us today, and especially for our teenagers as we've been talking or they've been working through this idea that we're not alone. And, and part of that means that our lives are not our own. We, it, it is for us and what we get from that. Um, by the way, we'll just get Reagan to do all the talking for the youth stuff from now on, right? Because I'll just have to agree with her. That was awesome. I love it. Um, but you know, it's not just about us. It is about us, but it's not just about us. And so this idea that God moves us out into the community and to the world community with the good news of Jesus Christ, um, we take that for granted a lot. Verse 45 is where the bomb goes off in the early church. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. Now, let me just stop to say, if you go back and read the first part of chapter 10, you'll find that when Simon Peter gets this message from God that he needs to go to Cornelius, and he goes to this Roman outpost called Caesarea, a city built for uh, the center of Roman power at that time in that place, not the whole Roman Empire, but for that place. It was the place. They built the harbor. Teresa and I got to go there and look at the ruins of that. This was a Roman place. And God says to Simon Peter, you need to go over there. And Simon Peter, whether he was just smart enough to figure it out or God gave information that we didn't find written here, uh, he took people with him, which is important for it turns out because of verse 45. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Now we might say, yeah, so. But if we inject ourselves into that first century context, at this point, God begins to push that early church out of Jerusalem and Judea and away from only Jews and the circle gets extended now to Gentiles. This was a watershed moment in church history. In fact, the Jews figured out we're not alone in this. I start here with the end in mind for us. Because if we're not careful, we start adopting all kinds of models of measuring success when it comes to church or our own Christian lives. 
And so we start adopting those things, that own, our own personal kind of Christian code of ethics, you know. I don't smoke and I don't drink. I don't dip snuff. I don't date girls that do that stuff. Or whatever your personal code of Christian ethics happens to be. I don't go to PG-13 movies. What is the standard for a life that God says, I can trust that, now watch me work. Look at what happens here. Simon Peter and Cornelius, two different followers of God. One, first a follower of Christ. The second one becomes a follower of Christ, but both of them love God from the outset. And God, in his incredible wisdom and precise timing, puts them together. How long has it been since you've seen God do a work that blew your mind? I'm going to tell you about a friend of mine. I'm, I'm thinking we may get out by two today. I don't really know, so still stay with me. I want to tell you about a friend of mine. Actually, this friend of mine um, has gone on to be with the Lord now. I first met Jimmy Cowart. Sorry, I hadn't really planned on getting emotional about this, but I first met Jimmy Cowart not long after he gave his life to Christ. Now, what you don't know is that Jimmy was, I think he was 50 years old when he finally gave his life to Christ. But the, the years leading into that were the kind of years that make for a great Christian conversion story. Jimmy was the owner of a trucking company down in deep south Texas. And uh, from the time he was a teenager, he was drinking and partying heavily. When he came to know Christ, he was drinking, on average, a fifth of Jack Daniels every day. Now, for those of you church people, that's, that's alcohol. That's whiskey. Okay. Uh, <laughs> go look in your cabinet. Just, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, no, that, that, never mind. Uh, I, I just never mind. So, um, so Jimmy was, he was a decent businessman. He grew a trucking company to be pretty large and successful. But he was a hard living guy. Partied all the time. First time I went over to his house was not long after he had uh, given his life to Christ and he still lived where he had been living uh, right next to his business. And, uh, he, we had a youth function. I was a youth minister at the time, and so we, he said, y'all come over and use the pool. Y'all come over. And so we went over there, and I walked into the room right next to where the pool was outside, and it was his party room. And the carpet was a roulette wheel-looking deal, and, you know, there was a bar there, and uh, the bar, the, it was empty, but it was still there, and I was thinking, I'm not sure for my church parents this is a great place for a teenager to be until I started talking to Jimmy. Let me tell you something. Jimmy, my dad said it this way, when Jimmy Cowart got saved, God got all of him. 
and Jimmy's life turned immediately. He was drinking heavily like that. He dropped alcohol and never had another drop after that day that he gave his life to Christ. Over the years, I watched Jimmy as he grew in his faith, and I watched as every person he came into contact with, he saw as an opportunity to share his testimony about what God had done in his life. It was an amazing transformation. Not long after I moved here, I received a call from Jimmy's son, Jim, uh, who is one of my closest friends in life. And so I went back to bury Jimmy because he had died. And so I got to talking to his son, and I was reminded of some things about Jimmy. See, Jimmy was such a partying guy that um, as a young man and with a family, uh, he was not around a whole lot. And he was working all the time, and partying was part of his work thing. And so my friend Jim, Jimmy's son, uh, from the time he was in high school, began to run that trucking company. And um, by the time Jim graduated from high school, he already had his pilot's license and he was flying people down into Mexico and landing on dirt land, uh, landing strips uh, to deliver those guys down there to do business and then fly them back that afternoon. Now, he was not doing, delivering drugs, just so you know. Um, but my friend Jim, the point is that he, he started running his dad's finances while he was in high school. My friend Jim was one of those guys who has everything in its place, even to this day. He knows, he figures contingencies upon contingency upon contingency. He can tell you where every dollar is being spent. He is a brilliant businessman. But you see, Jim had a problem in that he had his life so mapped out that he didn't need God. And it killed his daddy when his daddy gave his life to Christ. So Jimmy just kept living his life out in front of Jim. And that newfound life and that newfound purpose in his life began to bleed into that life of his son, the well-ordered, contingency-driven son of his. And Jim told me how his daddy finally impacted him with his own need for a savior. You see, it doesn't matter if your life's out of control or your life is ultra-controlled. You still need Jesus. And so Jim gave his life to Christ. And now he runs a multi-million dollar company. And he's all over the United States, sitting in offices of executives all over the place, telling them about Jesus Christ. How long has it been since you were part of a life change event for somebody like that? You see, what happens, I think, for us is we get so settled into just doing church and just going through the motions and our nice little controlled Christian lives that we forget that we're not alone. We're surrounded by people who desperately need Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Well, do you care about that? Here's the deal out of this passage. Let me take you back here. 
Simon Peter was surrounded by Romans all of at least the time he was following Jesus Christ. And yet if we read through this, and I don't have time to read through all of it today, but as you read through this chapter, you'll find that God had to do a work in his life to get him to be willing to go do that. Okay? He, God sent the message to Cornelius one time, hey, tell Simon Peter, send the Joppa, give him over here, and Cornelius did it. Simon Peter had to have three tries at this when this vision thing happened. Here's why I think that's a big deal. One of the barriers that we face as we seek to reach out to people is a religious barrier. Let me put it to you this way. Let's just cut straight to the chase. If a lady in a hijab walked in this place today, you know what that is? That's a, that's a Muslim head covering scarf. If one of those ladies walked in here, would you be offended by that or would you have a burden for that person? I have a son-in-law. I just have one. That's enough. Because I only have one daughter. Um, <clears throat> John has a heart for sharing Jesus with Islamic people, people who are Islamic in their faith. I'm amazed at this guy. You know what amazes me about him with that? I don't have that same burden he does, and that convicts me, frankly. It's easier for us to sit here in East Texas and watch news reports of a religious culture gone crazy on the other side of the planet and throw rocks at that than it is for us to invest people who need Jesus. We have these barriers. We have religious barriers. We have cultural barriers. We have all of these things like Simon Peter had. I, I can't go to that guy because he's dirty. He's a Gentile. God has to break through to him in a dream. I suspect that's because Simon Peter wouldn't have even dreamed to listen to it during his waking hours. Before Teresa and I left the Rio Grande Valley, I wanted to go see something that I knew was there. I just never had gone to see it. And so we drove down to Hidalgo, Texas, which is right on the border, right on the river. Reynosa is on the other side. It's on the Rio Grande River stretching from Brownsville up towards Laredo and uh, so we went down there, and I'd been down there many times. I ran a race from across the boundary, 10-mile race. We started in Reynosa, Mexico, and ran across the river into McAllen. So I, it's not that I had never been down there. I just hadn't been down there to see what I was, went down there to see, which was the border fence. You know what I find interesting? Uh, in our current political cycle, we have people promising, we're going to build a wall. You know what? There's already a fence down there. You know why we have a fence on the border? Listen very carefully now. Take your, take your nationalistic, patriotic stuff and hang on to it, okay? But listen with your spiritual ears. You know why we have a fence down there? Because there's people we don't want over here. I get that, and I even support that in many ways. But listen to the sound of that. We build a fence to keep people out 
because they don't belong here. Or at least we want to funnel them to the checkpoint so that we can make sure that we're getting the right. And I get that. I'm for that. You ought to be here legally if you're going to come. You ought to be here legally. But don't miss the fact that what is true nationally is also true spiritually. We tend to have those people who we just figure out, they're just untouchable here. Okay, As far as we're concerned, we are alone when it comes to those people. That's Simon Peter in the first part of chapter 10. But by the time we get to the end of chapter 10, Simon Peter's all in on God's plan now, which is we're not alone here. So let me give you quickly the three characteristics and I'm done. Matter of fact, our musicians can come on up. Here are the kind of people that I believe are usable by God. Remember the comment from my mentor, my dad. You get usable and God will use you up. Here's the first one. Usable people think strategically for the kingdom of God. Verses 44 through 48, what we read there, helps us to know that. God very clearly had this in mind as he started saying and working through that early church and talking to his leadership there. And Simon Peter is the leader of that early church at this point in the book of Acts. And God so strategically wants this to happen that he speaks to Simon Peter in a dream. So usable people are strategic. They think with the end in mind. And by the way, the end in this case is the kingdom of God is not just ours. Here's the second one. These usable people are predisposed to obey. I saw a story of a guy who told us a true story who was mourning the loss of his dog who had died in a forest fire. And this guy went to work that day out in the forest and his dog went with him as usual. And he set his lunch pail down in a clearing and he told the dog, you stay here, guard, and I'll be back at lunch. <laughs> and he, he said, I always had to be careful what I told my dog because he did everything I told him to do. And while that guy was in the forest, a fire swept through there that dog sat next to that lunch pail where he had been told to sit and died in the fire. Are you willing to do whatever God says? Even when it seems like it's time to cut and run? Sometimes God will tell us to do things that make absolutely no sense to us. But because it's with the end in mind, God is always aware. He's always strategic. He's moving us and moving history to its appointed end. There's somebody out there that needs us to be obedient, even when it seems crazy. The third characteristic is humility. Cornelius, it says over in verse 25 that he literally worshipped Simon Peter when he walked up. For a Roman centurion to do that with a Jewish fisherman makes absolutely no sense. But he was humble to the point of responding to what God had told him to do. Simon Peter represents that humility also. When you consider the social realities of his day, these Romans were an oppressive, occupying force. Consider the religious positions of the Jews relative to the Gentiles makes no sense. When you consider the human nature part of it, that says, I'm not going to a guy 
who I don't think is worthy of the good news of Jesus Christ. And yet because he was told to do it, he did it. Get usable and God will use you up. What kind of person is willing to let the barriers fall for the cause of the gospel? It's a person who sees people for who they are, is willing to do whatever God says to do, and gets after it. Won't you join me in prayer, if you will? I'm going to ask you a question as we close. Are there untouchable people in your circle? Remember, I've said many times that God has strategically placed each of us in a circle of people who desperately need us to share life with them. Sometimes the barriers that we erect keep us from following through on that purpose. Let me just ask you where you sit right there. Are you usable? Can you look at your own life and see that God is doing things in the lives of others because of your witness? Let's pull it off of you and put it on us as a church. Are we seeing lives change to God's glory? Because as a church, we've determined to be usable for the glory of God. This town is changing. People are coming in who are not longtime Lumberton people. Do they have a place here? So, Father, we give you this time and we ask you to change us where necessary, to give us a passion for people, whether they're local or across the world community. Give us a passion for people to come to your kingdom and all that that means. And then give us the opportunity, help us to see it, and help us to seize it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You come.